Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The transition from President Donald Trump to President Joe Biden was a dangerous one for American democracy. It had been a long campaign season with Trump determined to win a second term amidst a pandemic, economic ruin, and various other political disasters. The anti-American radicals defaming our noble history, heritage, and heroes, they support Sleepy Joe Biden. Antifa and the rioters, looters, Marxists, and left-wing extremists, they all support Biden. Meanwhile, Biden was facing his own set of challenges, trying to hold his family together while fighting for what he called the soul of America. I said at the time, we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. I said it again when I announced my candidacy. And I say it here today. We are in a battle for the soul of this nation. And come election night, there were no quick answers. Results took weeks, leaving room for conspiracies and lies. We all watched the subsequent transition play out, watched the January 6th attack on the Capitol unfold. It was clear that our democracy was being tested, but it wasn't fully clear exactly how much. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Oh, meanwhile, up on the steps of the backside of the Capitol, we're seeing protesters overcome the police. The police are now running back into the Capitol building. We have cheers from the protesters that are watching behind the scenes. To smash windows, to occupy offices, the floor of the United States Senate rummaging through desks, on the Capitol, on the House of Representatives, threatening the safety of duly elected officials. It's not protest, it's insurrection. Now we gather due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. I believe the president is dangerous and should not hold office one day longer. He may have only 13 days left as president, but yesterday demonstrated that each and every one of those days is a threat to democracy so long as he is in power. I joined the Senate Democratic leader in calling on the vice president to remove this president by immediately invoking the 25th Amendment. If the vice president and cabinet do not act, the Congress may be prepared to move forward with impeachment. Washington Post journalists Bob Woodward and Robert Costa set out to uncover the details of what was playing out behind the scenes during this unprecedented transition of power. In their new book, Peril, Woodward and Costa revealed just how close we came during that time to many crises, political ones, constitutional ones, domestic and international ones. Peril is a collection of accounts from deep inside the Trump White House, the Biden White House, the 2020 presidential campaign, 
the halls of Congress, and the Pentagon. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. For this book, Woodward and Costa interviewed more than 200 people and parsed through stacks of transcripts of confidential calls, diaries, emails, and meeting notes. So the first thing I wanted to ask Bob Woodward was, when you take on the challenge of writing a book like this, where do you even start? First of all, you have to figure out something that uh, you hope is important and that you hope you can get what we call the best obtainable version of the truth and talk to lots of people. We, of course, looked at that question of the transition from Trump to Biden, and that turns out to be the most dangerous transition, certainly in modern history. And we discovered that there was not just a domestic crisis with Trump, but a national security crisis. Robert, what made this transition so dangerous? We all knew January 6th, as we watched it as reporters, as citizens, was a domestic political crisis. But what our reporting shows and the storytelling shows is that this was an event, a riot, an insurrection that had consequences across the world, Iran, Russia, China, adversaries and allies on the edge of their seats about the fate of American democracy and the epic collapse of Donald Trump's presidency. And those close to the president inside of the cabinet, inside of the highest ranks of the U.S. military, including Chairman Milley, but also CIA Director Gina Haspel and others, were deeply alarmed that while President Trump might not want war in the sense of desiring an intervention, his conduct and his unpredictable behavior fueled this fear inside Trump's inner circle, inside the highest ranks of the federal government, that some kind of event could happen, an incident in a hair-trigger environment like we saw in January of 2021. One of the people alarmed by some of Trump's behavior, as Robert mentioned, was General Mark Milley. Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was appointed by Trump back in 2019. He emerged as one of the main characters in Peril. The book describes him talking to China, House Speaker Pelosi, and other officials about Trump's decision-making abilities during his final weeks in office. The nature of those talks, specifically the one with China, are being called into question. Republicans have called Milley's actions treasonous and say that he was trying to insert himself in the military chain of command. You said you were, quote, certain that President Trump did not intend on attacking China. That's what you just said. That's correct. Yet you're quoted in the Woodward book as telling the, cho- the top Chinese communist military commander, quote, if we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. Is that true, General Milley? Well, let me tell you what I actually said. Uh, well, that's we, not true. I hope that's Let me not. tell you what I actually said, Senator. Milley defended his actions during a Senate hearing earlier this week. The calls on 30 October and 8 January were coordinated before and after with Secretary Esper and Acting Secretary Miller's staffs and the interagency. The specific purpose of the October and January calls were to generate or were generated by concerning intelligence which caused us to believe the Chinese were worried about an attack on them by the United States. All of our reporting shows that his purpose was to protect the country. 
This was an extraordinary time in so many ways, and Trump uh, laid the stage in terms of accusing China, the China virus, of all of the things he was doing leading up to the election. And so it turns out four days before the election, sensitive intelligence showed, as Milley confirmed in his testimony, that China thought we were going to attack them. I know, I am certain, that President Trump did not intend to attack the Chinese. And it is my directed responsibility, and it was my directed responsibility by the Secretary to convey that intent to the Chinese. That is the worst kind of environment for a military person, where we have an adversary in the, the South China Sea, and when intelligence showed Chinese think we are going to attack them, Milley responsibly exercised the option on this top secret back channel he had with General Lee, head of the Chinese military, to call him and say, we have no intent to attack you. My task at that time was to de-escalate my message again was consistent. Stay calm, steady, and de-escalate. We are not going to attack you. And the second call after the insurrection was a time when the Chinese were worried that the United States was collapsing. And as Bob said, this put China, Russia, Iran, everyone on edge. And so this was an incredibly dangerous national security moment. The concern was that we would have some sort of incident with the Chinese, and the history of war shows clearly that accidents and miscommunication are the seeds of war. He, he acted not to usurp any authority, but to protect the country. Right. So you didn't walk away from your reporting with a sense that Milley or other key players pushed the limits of their constitutional authority. Yes. And that what's what's he doing here? He's trying to calm the wa waters and take that moment four days before the election, most contentious campaign in modern history. As we describe in great detail in the book, Trump is off tweeting all kinds of things that millions of foreign ballots are going to flood the United States. These screaming fits in the Oval Office, screaming at senior officials. Millet concluded that Trump was in a serious mental decline. As he said in his testimony, he's not qualified to determine the mental health of a president of the United States but that's not a denial. We have this transcript of Pelosi and Milley on uh, January 8th saying, look, you've got to contain Donald Trump. You've got to make sure he won't launch nuclear weapons. And Milley is trying to assure her, oh, we have procedures. And then he realizes that as exhibited enough uh, mental decline, uh, erratic behavior, 
that even though they have those procedures, he wants to underscore that those procedures have to be followed. Later that same day, on 8 January, Speaker of the House Pelosi called me to inquire about the President's ability to launch nuclear weapons. I sought to assure her that nuclear launch is governed by a very specific and deliberate process. She was concerned and made, very, or made various personal references characterizing the President. I explained to her that the President is the sole nuclear launch authority and he doesn't launch them alone, and that I am not qualified to determine the mental health of the President of the United States. There are processes, protocols, and procedures in place, and I repeatedly assured her that there is no chance of an illegal, unauthorized, or accidental launch. So he calls into his office in the Pentagon some of the key people who run the war room, the National Military Command Center. I convened a short meeting in my office with key members of my staff to refresh all of us on the procedures which we practice daily at the action officer level. And says to them, we need to make sure we follow the procedures. In fact, I want to make sure that I am in the loop and that I am called if there's any order for military action or the use of nuclear weapons. At no time was I attempting to change or influence the process, usurp authority, or insert myself in the chain of command. He goes around the room and asks, do you got it? Yes, sir. You got it. Yes, sir. You got it. Yes, sir. You got it. Yes, sir. Very dramatic movie material. Now, the last time we heard this occurred was 1974, when Secretary of Defense, then James Schlesinger, was worried about Nixon's stability, mental decline, drinking too much. And so Schlesinger did this exact move with officials and said, take no order from the president or the White House without making sure I am involved. The most important thing to realize is that the presidency is where all of this power is directed. What we've really uncovered in this story is a crisis, not just in terms of a national security crisis, domestic political crisis, but a crisis slash debate about presidential power. Does the president have too much power? Does the presidency have too much power to launch nuclear weapons, to refuse to concede an election and force maybe even a vice president to decertify or ignore electors? These are all real problems in American democracy. It's the presidency now with Biden and then with Trump where the focus has to be. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Robert, a common theme in a lot of Trump coverage, and, and certainly in your book, is that 
The people closest to Trump during his presidency were not necessarily vocal about the things that they disagreed with him on. And many of them remained in their positions despite having internal struggles about their differences with the president himself. Why do you think we saw that with this president? And is that something that is true of all presidencies or was it particularly acute under the Trump presidency? What's revealed in our book is a story that's complex. There are those who speak up. There are those who stay silent. There are those who enable the president and others who like to think they're not enabling President Trump at the time. But what you do see is a portrait of a president really built on nine, 10 months of reporting who does not listen. A president who does not take advice from someone like Attorney General Bill Barr on a political level when Barr goes to see him in April 2020 and says, the biggest problem is voters think you're an expletive and you think you're an expletive genius. And he thought the president was playing far too much to his base. And others concerned about President Trump veering off course, especially after the death of George Floyd in the summer and the president walks across Lafayette Square. That was a real pivot point in our book where you see the alarm among those around President Trump ratchet up to an even higher level. In the transition period, as the president refuses to concede, you do see people worried around him, like Gina Haspel, the CIA director, worrying that there could be a right-wing coup on the horizon as the president installs allies in key national security posts and fires the defense secretary, Mark Esper, in early November, days after the election. But like everything in politics, are these people really confronting him or not? Could they have done more? Uh, That's not for us to make a judgment on as reporters, but there are interesting moments for readers to consider, like After the insurrection, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer call up Vice President Pence, trying to get him on the phone to talk about invoking the 25th Amendment to put some kind of stability into the presidency. And Vice President Pence, we show, does not even take the phone call. He he doesn't think it even merits a discussion. And history will look back on moments like that and wonder about Vice President Pence's own position and his decisions. I just want to follow up with you about Vice President Pence. In the book, you reveal that he was so committed to Trump that he he actively tried to find ways to avoid certifying the election results. Of course, he ultimately did certify the results. But what did you glean about Pence's thinking? And where does he stand now with Trump loyalists? If you step back, I've covered Vice President Pence when he was a House member. I used to go see him in the Speaker's lobby, this area outside of the House of Representatives, the chamber, and where members would mingle with reporters, and he would be there, and no crowds around him. With faith, it begins with what matters most, um, and I try and put um, uh, what I believe to be moral truth first, uh, my philosophy of government second, and my politics third. And this is someone who then eventually becomes governor of Indiana and is plucked out of the gubernatorial race in 2016, a race he polling shows he very well could have been defeated in, and he becomes the running mate for Donald Trump, then wins the vice presidency, and you see him make a decision then, he's going to be a loyalist to Trump, that Trump is not only his boss as the president and the president of the United States, but the key to his own political future. He could be the successor to Trump. And that ethic, uh, that approach remained during the transition, but wow, was it tested, our reporting shows. But his lawyers, his advisors kept telling him, you can't do anything except count the votes on January 6th, And he had a a galaxy of voices really saying that to him. Even Vice President Quayle, another Indiana Republican, a Hoosier, is saying to Pence, 
You can't do anything. Count the votes. Put it away, Mike. Forget it. We never know how politics is going to unfold. So polling shows him somewhat down with some Trump voters, but he's certainly not out of the mix for 2024. You know, President Trump and I have spoken many times since we left office. And I don't know if we'll ever see eye to eye on that day. But I will always be proud of what we accomplished for the American people over the last four years. Now, Bob, we've talked a lot here about people who've largely remained loyal to Trump during his presidency. But one person who you write about in the book is former House Speaker Paul Ryan, who decided not to seek reelection after working with Trump for about a year. So what did you make of Ryan during his time working with Trump and then his decision to be more outspoken against him after he was no longer speaker? Well, he, he walked away from the speakership after some time serving in that role in the Trump administration. And we recount how he was so worried about Trump that he began looking at the psychiatric manuals and just learning how to deal with somebody who has a narcissistic personality disorder. And that was his mode of dealing with Trump. And we recount scenes where Trump wouldn't sign bills that were necessary. I mean, they literally had to corral Trump to get him to do what was in Trump's own interest. And this is a key theme in this. People are trying to say to him, this is in your interest to do this. But you see moments of actual honesty. Voters looking for Republican leaders want to see independence and medal. They will not be impressed by the sight of yes-men and flatterers flocking to Mar-a-Lago. We win majorities by directing our loyalty and respect to voters and by staying faithful to the conservative principles that unite us. And then you see moments where many of these Republicans just hide in the woods and don't tell the public or their constituents the doubt they have and the worry. Uh, we just had a very long productive meeting with the president. Uh, the president informed us that he will not sign the bill that came over from the Senate last evening uh, because of his legitimate concerns for border security. So what we're going to do is go back to the House and work with our members. We want to keep the government open, but we also want to see an agreement that protects the border. We have very serious concerns about securing our border. So the president said he will not sign this bill. This is part of the peril that people are not turning their cards face up, that Trump, as we know from polling, is likely to run. Bob Gosta and I think he will run and that he could get the nomination. There's some polling that shows he could beat Biden. So we're going to be back in this situation where you have a president who, who's Chief focus is not serving the American public, but serving himself. You said just a few moments ago, that's the peril. And I think the peril as it applies to the Trump presidency is very obvious in your book. But the book also follows Joe Biden from his early days on the campaign through his own inauguration. How does the title of your book apply to Biden? What would you mark as the moments of peril for him thus far, Bob? The title comes from Biden's inaugural address saying that this is a winter of peril. 
and the peril we see daily with the COVID-19 surge, all kinds of issues in Congress about funding and spending. This is a great nation. We are good people. And over the centuries, through storm and strife, in peace and in war, we've come so far. But we still have far to go. We'll press forward with speed and urgency, for we have much to do in this winter of peril and significant possibilities. And then you see the Afghanistan withdrawal, which didn't turn out as they hoped. Even the generals, McKenzie and Milley, acknowledged and said in a forthright way that the way they handled the Afghan withdrawal was a strategic failure. So what did you learn about how Biden came to his decision to withdraw, despite some conflicting advice from the officials close to him? You see in our book that this is not some kind of isolated decision that he just starts making in February of 2021. Biden brings to this decision, so important for his presidency, decades of experience, decades of perspective forged in the U.S. Senate when he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, eight years as vice president under Barack Obama. So he comes into this decision-making process with a lot of experience and a lot of hardened views on what's possible or not possible in Afghanistan. And Robert Costas right there, it was a core belief that Biden had that this mission going into Afghanistan to prevent al-Qaeda from reconstituting so they could launch an attack against the United States or allies. This morphed into a mission of let's protect the population, let's nation build. As we outline in some detail, Biden just thought this was nonsense and a waste. And he even said at one of the meetings, if he had a son, he would not send his son to the Afghanistan war. We have to get out. We have to stop this thing. The real question now is, what happens? Where does it go? Are these terrorist groups going to be able to reconstitute and rebuild within Afghanistan? Are we going to have the problem we had before the 9-11 terrorist attacks? So this is one of the if you will, perils that continues. Yes, unfortunately, it seems like many perils from your book do seem to be ongoing. But with that, I just want to thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. The book is Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. You can also find excerpts from the book as well as tons of reporting on the ongoing fallout from that transition of power on WashingtonPost.com. And you can support all of that work with a subscription to The Washington Post, just a dollar a week for your first year. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh, with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? 
From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Mm-hmm.